Uh, well, a warm, warm welcome to City Legal. Uh, it's great to have you with us, whether you're joining us uh, online from home or you've got a small watch party somewhere in an office or in a cafe, or if you're here in person, a very warm welcome to you. We want to stand with you at this increasingly strange time uh, in, uh, in history. My name's Peter Wrench and the City Legal community uh, exists to consider the bigger questions of life with silks and suits in cities right around Australia. And we do that by looking at the Bible together. Uh, the format for those who are new in our, in our midst, and we're, you're very welcome, uh, is a short talk followed by a Q&A. And um, we're very privileged to have with us again, David Robertson, who's a national communicator with City Bible Forum. And he's gonna be speaking to us. And he's actually, he's actually gonna begin by reading from a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the small group of Christians living in Rome. It's called the Letter to the Romans. And he's gonna, uh, in a few moments, gonna begin by that, by reading that. And you'll see that coming up on the screen, or there'll be a link posted there. Uh, you can also ask questions at any time by texting the number that's on the screen. So just text that number through and David will get the questions or you can use the chat function. So uh, David, I'm going to get you up now and you can uh, begin by reading. Yep. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I do want to say welcome to those who are watching online as well. Uh, I'm in a cafe here in Sydney with a bunch of cranky lawyers because uh, there is no uh, coffee or uh, I do see a cup of coffee. That's the coffee machine has Todd has managed to get a coffee, which is great. Um, I'm going to read from Romans, Romans chapter one, and just uh, bear with me as I, I want to explain some of the the background to this and also uh, what we're going to be looking at. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to skip to verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, um, just to remind you, you you're welcome to uh, text in questions and, or to write down questions here as well. Um, as I've said before, I'm a Scottish Presbyterian minister, so I could talk for half an hour, and that would just be subsection A of my first point. So I'd rather not do that. Um, so my idea is, is to provoke you to... <laughs> To ask questions. Now, when you hear the word law, let's just leave aside the fact that many of you have some connection with the law. I think most people do not conceive of it as a positive thing. So that, um, you know, would you rather have grace or law? Well, I think I'd rather have grace or love or law. And we talk about people being legalistic. But I think there's a misuse in terms of language and a, a shallowness in the way that that is done. And in particular, I want to talk here about what I would call the gospel, the good news of the law, or the good news 
That's one aspect of the law, which is here described as the righteousness of God. Now, part of that is tied in with the idea of being fair. So when you're a child, you have an innate sense of fairness. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. Uh, uh, as uh, a teenager, I was acutely aware of the injustice and the unfairness in the world. Uh, by the time you reach the venerable age of most people in this room, you're going, well, that's just the way it is. Um, but there is a sense of fairness. And how do we measure that? How do we know that? How do we, it, it was, that was one of the great driving forces for C.S. Lewis when he was saying, well, if that's true in the Bible, it's not fair. Or that's not, and then he was saying, how did I get this sense of fairness? There must be some kind of law whereby I judge. And he said, well, if there's some kind of law, there must be some kind of lawgiver. And so it was a kind of very logical thing for him. That's the same for me. So let me just give you a very personal and painful example. I feel I used to joke about coming in exile to Australia um, because uh, there are people in the United Kingdom who think of Australia as some kind of backwater, whereas I have a map which shows Australia at the center of the world, uh, while well, New Zealand at the center, actually, but, um, <laughs> which is an interesting concept. But, um, and I, but I did joke about coming in exile, and now I'm here, and I, uh, uh, I joke now about being imprisoned like Napoleon on Elba, just slightly bigger because uh, I've, uh, I was, I'm trying to get home for my daughter's wedding, and I've been informed by the Australian Immigration Department, oh, you can't go because you're not an Australian citizen, so you couldn't come back. And I said, couldn't I just like, I pay my taxes, I live here, couldn't I just appeal and apply? And they said, no. I said, so you mean I'm imprisoned here, I'm not allowed to leave? And they said, oh no, no, we're not saying that. And I said, no, no, let's, let's just be legalistic about this just for a minute. You're saying I can leave, but I can't come back. So in order to leave, I have to give up my job and my home. Oh, we're not saying you can't come back. You just have to apply for a visa when you're away. I said, yeah, but given a visa takes about three months to come through and I'm going for two weeks, it doesn't exactly work. So I'm having interesting legalistic discussions. So I'm going to appeal both to power and to mercy. And we will see if the Australian Immigration Department uh, at least listens to mercy. But it's, the whole idea of law, law is very, very important. You shouldn't, it shouldn't just be the case that if you are mega wealthy, you are able to buy your way in and out of the country. I, I do have a slight suspicion that Kerry Packer is probably not going to be too concerned about whether he can go to the US or not, or, or different things. So law is incredibly important. It was incredibly important in this context, in this culture. And I just want to explain a little bit of this because we are going to come back to this in a couple of other talks. Romans itself is one of the most important letters documents ever written. Uh, we have around 14,000 letters from the ancient world, and I doubt that the, this one, which is 7,100 words long, is there is any more important. John Stott says that this is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It had a profound influence on people who've had a profound influence on our world. So Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Wesley, um, there are people, theologians like Karl Barth, who was converted through becoming a uh, reading Romans, or the uh, Romanian Orthodox, uh, Dimitri Cornelescu. So I, I think um, what happened to Augustine when he was in a garden and he, he th thought he heard a voice saying, tole lege, take up and read, and he did, and he, he, it was Romans, and he read Romans, and then one of the greatest minds ever in the history of the world,
became uh, a Christian and had a profound influence. Now, it's a letter that was written to Rome, and we tend to have a, a, a tendency to think of the ancient world as being a bit backward and that we're progressive. Uh, we progressed in certain technological features so that we can do this. But I'm not sure that we progressed in terms of philosophy, in terms of music, in terms of literature. Is it really the case that we, for example, have surpassed the Iliad? Um, for those of you who are, who are culture vultures, and I know that everyone in Australia is. I was told this week, I, I can't believe that this is true, that Australia is a country that has a magnificent opera house, which no Australians go to. But I, I hope that that's not the case. Um, but Rome was a city of about one million people at the center of the largest empire the world had ever known. Paul wrote this letter because they were, um, he, he'd come across people from Rome all over the place. He'd, he'd in Antioch, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Corinth, in Ephesus. And he was intending to come to Rome. Now, in the year AD 49, before this letter was written, the Emperor Claudius had thrown out all the Jews from Rome, so Paul wasn't able to go. Basically, they'd been banned. So, uh, just as people are banned from coming to Sydney from overseas unless they're uh, their particular circumstances. But Nero was now in power when Paul wrote this letter and he allowed the Jews back. So he, he wanted to come. He wasn't able to come. So he sent a woman, probably Phoebe, uh, with this letter to the Christians who were a mixture of Jew, those from a Jewish background and those from a Gentile background. Now, in the year AD 49, there were riots in Rome, and the historian Suetonius says that it was at the instigation of a man called Christus. And from that, we gather that these riots, that people were blaming the Christians, which was going to happen more and more, for some of the things that had gone wrong within the culture. Now, he writes this as Paul. Uh, I'm not going to go into who Paul is. Uh, uh, we don't have time to do that, but I do want to focus on... The, this just this these verses about the gospel i'm not ashamed of the gospel and the righteousness of god what is it it's good news again uh, it's like words uh, i'm saying the meaning of words when we use the term gospel what does that mean you may see someone uh, say well it's the gospel truth so it's almost like they're swearing by it and um gospel can carry different ideas people think of gospel singers or whatever they obviously many people think of religious but what Paul says here is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, there's so much that's been written about this, I'm going to condense it into just a, a few minutes. But Martin Luther, when he read in Romans that the righteous will live by faith, Romans 1.17, which is a, a citation of an Old Testament passage from Habakkuk 2.4, when he grasped those words, a religious, cultural, social, and political revolution began. And I'm hopeful that even somebody who's listening to this, if you've grasped the meaning of these words, it will at least have a personal revolution and therefore an impact upon others in your lives. Now, the righteousness is being revealed. What does that mean? Um, you're waiting for the results of an exam or an x-ray. Uh, you are waiting. The righteousness, it's, it's, it, it will be revealed. I don't know how it's done here, but at this time of year back in Scotland, uh, if you're at school, you would get, used to get posted to you. You can get it by email now. 
but you would get posted to your exam results. And it was just a dread feeling to go downstairs and to open up. Um, I remember my daughter doing it and she went to her room and shut the door. And then I heard the tears and I thought, oh no, you know, I'm going to have to. And it turned out that actually it was tears of joy. So uh, that, that was a, a, a relief. But this righteousness of God is being revealed. This x-ray, if you like, is being revealed. Now, it's going to be revealed on the last day. We say, well, this is not fair and that's not fair. And why does this happen? On the last day, it will be revealed. But what Paul is saying to the Romans, many of whom lived under oppression, uh, he was saying to the, these people, look, the righteousness of God is now revealed. Well, what is it? First of all, it's an attribute. It's a quality in his character. Um, I, again, just thinking in terms of, of lawyers, I, I kind of, I want a lawyer to be good and to know the law, but I'd quite like them to be righteous as well, at least to be able to trust them. Now, again, I'm sure it's not true in Australia, but in the United Kingdom, the concept of, of a, a lawyer and trusting lawyers, that goes along with the concept of trusting secondhand car salespeople. Well, I, I know some very good secondhand car salespeople who I would trust, but I'd like to be able to trust my lawyer. I'd like to be able to trust my doctor. I think that, that's fairly important. I think I'd actually quite like to be able to trust my minister as well, or my pastor. That also is fairly important. But it's this aspect of, of consistency in character. So what's important about that is, and it's a fundamental, is that there is nothing that's not right with God. The, 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 the idea is, oh, we're going to say, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion will say, I don't believe in this God who does this, 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 and this. He's sitting in judgment upon God. But where do we get our standard of rightness from? Well, that's from God. So it's an attribute. It's an activity. It's his actions. Especially in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and the Psalms, God's righteousness and what he does are described as the same. And it's a gift because he says here, it's a righteousness that is from God. It's something that he bestows upon us. It, Paul is saying here, this is God declaring us not guilty. And that's how he uses it in this book. He uses the word righteousness here always to mean the verdict of the judge, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Um, that is, is just fundamentally important. Now, whatever you think of this, and I, I'm not, I actually don't want to get into this case, but I'm using it as an example because it's a very famous one, and that is of, of Cardinal George Pell. How do you think he would have felt when his appeal came through, overturned, not guilty? So when you, it, it, that's the way that Paul is using this here. It's a quality then, it's an activity, and it's a gift. That's like getting the scan that says all clear or the exam result that says you've passed. How do you get it? You get it by faith, it says, from God who gives it to humans. Now, this is a fundamental difference between religion and what I'm going to term biblical Christianity, i.e. real Christianity. Virtually all religion is do this and you will live. Do the right thing and you'll be fine. Paul and Jesus turns that almost on its head and says that it's not about your righteousness and it's not about your goodness. There's a guy I love listening to, Jordan Peterson, and I love listening to him for lots of ways because he's so stimulating, but he's also so frustrating. Last night I was watching a, a, a lecture that he gave at Queen's University in the US, not in Belfast, and um, I just, he, he was utterly brilliant until he came to this 
you know, you just got to do your best. You've got to man up. You've got to have a going, no, 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 you're, you're missing. You got so close. You've analyzed the problem. You haven't got the solution. There's a, a, an emphasis here on faith. Now, what does that mean? Again, notice the importance of language. Up until the last decade of the 20th century, the concept of faith was basically belief based upon evidence. That was the general idea. But if you control the language, you can control the concepts, if you like. The new atheists have largely managed to get the concept of faith in popular culture and also in dictionaries changed to being faith is belief in spite of or contrary to the evidence. Now, that's not the Christian position at all. You know, I've, I've mentioned this before, that you can have faith for ridiculous things. You know, um, Australia winning the World Cup, you know, things like that. Uh, or Scotland winning the World Cup uh, in, 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 in any format. It, it, it's a, you can say, I, I have faith this, I have faith that. That's not what faith is. Faith is based upon a certain amount of evidence. So after I'm finished here, I'm going to go to and speak in a school. And I've got faith that I'll be able to get there in time because I trust what my Google app says about Uber. So maybe that's going too far in terms of faith, but that's based upon previous experience. It's not just blind faith. It's not me stepping out the door saying, okay, now I'm gonna levitate and get to uh, the school that I'm going to. That's not the way that it works. Faith is not anti-intellectual. That's the other thing. If Paul was saying just have faith, you would not have 7,100 words. He would just say, just have faith. He gives, in, the point about Romans is, it's incredibly detailed, logical, consequential. Um, you, you, it takes a lot to read Romans. You can read it. I mean, I think a child can read it and grasp most of it. But in reality, you could be analyzing this text for decades and still delving deep into it. I've got one set of commentaries that is 18 uh, long. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's extraordinary how much is in there. But faith is a belief and a trust, a, a saving trust in the person of uh, Jesus Christ. That's what it means in terms of living by faith. It's interesting, Habakkuk, who Paul is quoting, an Old Testament prophet, had complained about the proud Babylonians being, being used to humble Israel. Because this is what happens. Human beings rely on their own goodness and rely on their own works. Um, I, would, I would often hear this. I would say to someone, do you think you're going to heaven? Oh, well, I hope so. I've not been that bad a person. Or sometimes when people use the word atonement, Ian McEwan, the uh, Scottish writer, has a book called Atonement, and there's a film of it called Atonement. And it's really interesting because... There's a sense in which McEwen gets this. A, a girl commits uh, a terrible crime, really, when she's a, a, a young girl, which results in devastation for her family and for herself. And the film and the book is basically about her trying to make atonement for it, but she can't. And we think we can. We think, I've done a little, okay, I'm not terribly bad, but I've done a few bad things. Never mind, I can make up for it. And uh, the Bible says, no, actually, you can't. You can't make atonement. But 
for God to be fair and just, he has to deal with the things that we do wrong. And the argument is, as Paul presents it, is that it's through Jesus Christ that that happens. So let me some, just summarize this in this way. We live in a society like Rome where people are really confused, where fake news and post-truth and maybe uh, fear as well stalk the kind of land. But we have great news. It sounds as though Paul is giving us bad news because he basically says you can't save yourself, your family can't save you, your society can't save you, your religion can't save you. But the good news is that there is one who can and one who does. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the message of the Bible is, yes, there is meaning, there is justice, there is righteousness, there is law in the world. Yes, there is pain and there is sorrow and there is suffering and there is evil. How is God going to deal with that? It's through the person and work of Jesus Christ so that all who trust in him may be declared righteous and may receive his salvation. All right, I'll leave it there. Okay, thanks very much, uh, David. And um, we're going to give David just a moment to catch his breath. And so you can just text a question in uh, on the number that's on the base of the screen or on, on the pieces of paper. We've got some questions here. Uh, or if you'd like to actually, it might be nice for those people watching on, for some of the people here, just to get up and ask a question. Just stand here and then you, you, get, a better, you get a better answer if that happens. Is that right, David? No. No, you don't. Okay, well, I'll start with this one just here. Okay, here we go. Here's, okay. a, here's the first one. Uh, why do the Romans care that Jesus was a descendant of David? Uh, did the Gentile Romans know who David was? Okay. Um, Paul's writing to a church that's a combination of Jews and Gentiles and a church where there is division. And uh, part of the purpose of Romans is to deal with that religious, social... Um, division. And so he's, he's saying really to the Jews here, the primary thing is David is a descendant of David. Uh, sorry, Jesus is a descendant of David. There's several significant things for that. Number one is it fulfills a prophecy that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But also a lot of the Gentiles would have gone and heard that there was a group called God-fearers who went to synagogues, uh, in Rome and elsewhere, and they would have been aware of this. The uh, Old Testament had been translated into Greek, the Septuagint, and it was one of the major documents of both the Latin and the Greek world. So the Roman and the, and the Greek world. So I think it's partly to tie in with the prophecy aspect and partly to, to say to the Jewish people, Jesus is one of you as well. Okay, Todd's got a question. Do you want to come up, Todd? Todd, go for it. Get your mic, yeah. Yeah, just grab that one. Um, I'm just going to say, what do you say? Stand there. Yeah. Yeah. Keep your distance. No. <laughs> um, what do I say to someone who asks, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need salvation? Why don't I just cease to exist when I die? Okay. Um, well, the answer to that is no, you will not cease to exist when you die. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, Solomon says this, that God 
has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What a burden he has laid upon them. So there's a sense of eternity. You as a human being, you may deny this. You may say, I am just a blob of carbon floating from one meaningless existence to another, as Bertrand Russell said. <clears throat> and you may, you may want that to be true, but it's not true. And in and of yourself, you are aware of that. Now, even if you're not certain of that, you have to do Pascal's wager and say, ah, it's a big deal if, if I'm going to live on. That's one thing. And then the other, the, the first part of the question is for me a little bit more important because it's saying, how do I, be, how, how do I get right? Now, it may be that anyone watching this uh, or, or someone might think, I'm pretty well, I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. To which I would simply answer, I doubt I can get out this door without doing or saying something wrong. You know, um, I think we are, we, are, we are not aware just of, of how weak we are in so many ways. And we can't save ourselves. For me, the analogy I would use, and I, I have mentioned it here before, was in 2011, I was um, seriously ill. At the time, the day before I ended up in hospital, I would have said I was mega fit. You know, and there's nothing wrong with me. I never ever thought about being ill. You know, and then I collapsed and almost died and ended up, you know, in a pool of blood and on a, in a coma for so long. Um, when coming out of hospital, my attitude had changed considerably, not least, I'm but a breath. I couldn't breathe. That was part of my problem. And I, I just realized how weak and fragile our life is. And, and I would say that that's exactly the same, that the person who feels, I'm fine, I can, I'm saying, you, you have no idea. And I'm hoping and praying that God would show you bef before the reality of that really hits home. Check my phone. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry, I've got to check my I've, phone. I've got, a, your pardon. I've, I've got another question here, but just, yeah. um, so shall I, give, shall I give you one of these while you yeah, look, sure. look for some other ones that have come through? Okay, this is another one. Uh, did the Romans post 70 AD allow the Jews to live in Rome? And there's a, a, a follow-on. Uh, did the early Christians get caught up in the Roman persecution of the Jews or were they separately persecuted? Because you, you talked yeah. before about the, the Christians being singled out and Suetonius recording that. What, what's your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think Suetonius in, in 49 is a confusion between the Christians and the Jews. I, I, I think that is the case. However, it's very, very interesting. Um, there's two things here. One is, for some reason, I think I know the answer, but uh, the Jews have always been persecuted. Uh, it's, Pascal says, if you want one of the great proofs of, for God, it's the continued existence of the Jews, because they're the most persecuted people in the history of the world ever. And yet the Romans were much more tolerant of the Jews than they became of the Christians. Why? Because the Jews did not threaten Rome. They, as long as they stayed to their own synagogues and their own groups, that was fine, and basically acknowledged Caesar as Lord. The Christians made a specific point of saying, we'll never acknowledge Caesar as Lord. There is only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. And that was a fundamental threat to the Roman system. So it's a bit like in today's society, we're not quite there yet, but we're heading towards a position where the state could say, oh, we don't mind you being Christian. You be Christian all that you want. You know, dress up and go to your church buildings and just be like a knitting club or something. But if you do not accept our standards, our morals, then, then we're going to persecute you. And that's exactly what happened in terms of the Roman thing, because the way they controlled their vast empire was to have people say, you, they said, you have whatever God you want, 
but just acknowledge that Caesar is also God. And because Caesar was actually there and none of the, and Jupiter and Thor and all the others weren't there, it was thumbs up for them. So in effect, they were saying there's another king. Yeah, they were, they, they, were, they, were, they were basically saying, you worship Jesus or whatever, all you want, but you have to say that Caesar is Lord. And the Christians said, no, we never say that. And so the persecution, and also Christians were a very easy group to pick on. So if you're Nero, Christians tended to be poorer and more despised. And so you, um, you know, things aren't going too well in the economy, blame the Christians. Weather's bad, blame the Christians. You know, COVID-19 comes, it's all the Christians' fault. Oh, yeah. Hello, hello to the camera. Yeah. Hey, listen, and I'm not going to talk to you, camera, anymore unless someone sends me a text question, which, which they just did. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I tend to address people who are talking. So I have to talk to the camera just now. Uh, I can't address you lot because you put me off. You're so ugly. No, no. sorry. No. Yeah, well, take my glasses off. Yeah, that would be, yeah. No, then you would see my eyes, which would be awful. Um, how does one respond to atheists or extremists who say faith is a license for stupidity? Well, um, I am so tempted uh, to respond in this way. Uh, don't say atheists or extremists, because atheists are extremists. No, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the first thing. Um, who say faith is a license for stupidity? Yes, blind faith is. Blind faith is a license for stupidity. But so is faith, the kind of faith that says, do you know this? I just believe that when I die, that's it. It's all over and done with. Well, that's a kind of faith. Or even if you think, I have the faith to determine whether there is a God or not. Or I have the faith to say whether God is good or not. That, that I have the ability, that, that whether God is good or not. All of us operate on a basis of faith in different ways. And I think faith is being used here in the question or, or the statement that it's blind faith. And yes, blind faith is a license for stupidity. And I've seen that. I've seen that in religion a lot. Um, I, I've seen uh, a classic example would be, let's just take it even within, within the Christian church. Somebody who's a clergyman who's got some degree of power and authority and uses that power and authority to abuse somebody. And the person says, well, no, I've got faith that father so-and-so or pastor so-and-so is a good person. And you're saying, no, don't be daft. Don't be daft. Don't have that kind of blind faith. That's stupidity. But faith in Jesus Christ based upon what is revealed to us is not stupidity. Read Romans and whatever else, it's not stupid. You may disagree with it. You may not accept its thesis, but it's certainly not stupid. So that, that by the way, was a brilliant question. And so were all the others. And thank you for reminding me to look at people <laughs> and, and not look at Peter, which really... It's okay. straining my off, eyes. Off-putting. Um, yeah. Okay, last, last question. If the, if the Christians uh, in Rome originally were, uh, tend to be from the poorer sections of the community and the despised sections, how then did Christianity spread right through the Roman Empire by the 4th century? Yeah, well, by the 4th century, think about it. That's 300 years. That takes quite a while. But also, what you'll find, Paul says about the Corinthians, he says, not many of you were of noble birth, not many of you were... Um, you know, considered wise philosophers and so on, but God's taken the weak things of this world and so on. And the, the general methodology within the Christian church, at least the way that it worked, was um, the poorer people responded. And middle class people need to be very careful, not because they were stupid. You know, please do not assume that because um, people don't belong to your class that they are less intelligent. 
I, I, I've often said this, the hardest questions I've ever received from anywhere have been from 10 year old kids from working class housing schemes in Scotland, rather than Times journalists or uh, university academics. But I think how it spread was this, it, it, largely it spread from the bottom up, but there were people like Nicodemus who was wealthy. There were, by the time we get to Romans, if you go, uh, if you go to the end of Romans 16, there's a list of people whom he greets and there are some, for example, who are in the palace. The, the Christians, in this Richard Dawkins got it right, the Christians were like a virus, spread everywhere. You know, they tried to quarantine us, but it just never ever worked. And, and so it's not that the Bible is opposed to rich people. In fact, uh, you find more and more that there were wealthier people and powerful people who uh, became Christians. But in general, I think it's a truth that the gospel methodology was from the bottom of society, if you like, up rather than from the top down. And maybe there are lessons for us in, in that today. So I think um, there's another reason I think that the church grew uh, and, and eventually took over. Firstly, the Romans had no answer to it. Secondly, the, the Christians cared not only for their own poor, but for others. And uh, thirdly, I would argue the power of the Holy Spirit. I would say people like Paul and Peter and Luke arguing consistently and logically. I would say there was the Roman road, uh, the Via Romana, which allowed the, the church to spread out all over the Mediterranean. I, I would say also there was the flexibility within Christianity because there were no buildings, because there were no clergy as such. It was a very flexible and dynamic organization. Now you may not equate that with the church today, and we maybe need to think about that. Things have developed. But nonetheless, that is uh, what happened. So the whole growth of the Christian church, but I, I think the key part of the question, to be honest, is that it was over three, 400 years. Uh, it was just a, a, a gradual seeping through. And I suspect that those of you who are Christians who are watching this, thinking, oh, if only we had one big revival. I think, no, I think it's... It's probably going to take decades for, for the, if you like, the reconversion of what was uh, Christendom, which was Europe and, and everything from there. It may, it may take just as long again for that to happen, but I also believe it can happen because I believe that the gospel is the gospel and it's still the same today as it was in Paul's day. So that was a long answer to a great question. In fact, all your questions were great and um, Let's continue this next week. Okay. Thank you very much, David. We're just about out of time. Um, we're going to be, yes, a round of applause for David. Oh, thank you. Thank you.